you know, that would be the last thing that I would do as a USAFEF Africa commander is reward somebody for incompetence and unprofessionalism. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm J.J. Gertler. Vago Maradian is on assignment, although his voice will appear later in the program through the miracle of digital technology. There's a hot war in Europe, and while the United States may not be directly involved, it raises the threat level and also gives us the opportunity to learn more about a significant potential adversary. The man in charge of United States interest in that part of the world, General James Scorch Hecker, joins us with the latest from the forward edge. And it's AvGeek prom time in Washington. We review the Air and Space Forces Association Air Space Cyber Convention with Air and Space Forces Magazine's John Turpak. A lot of this week's headlines came from that conference, but we'll have a few more for you as well. And it's all powered by GE. From America's first jet engine to the revolutionary three-stream adaptive cycle engine, GE Aerospace has been delivering firsts for military propulsion for more than 100 years. Learn about the latest innovation at geaerospace.com XA100. And Bell sponsors the Defense and Aerospace Report daily podcast. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And Spirit Aerosystems Defense and Space sponsored our coverage of the Air and Space Force Association's Airspace Cyber Convention. In this week's headlines, one of the interesting things to come out of that conference was the unveiling of the Anduril Fury, a high-speed, low-cost UAV. If it looks familiar, that's because it's what Blue Force Technologies was developing as what they called their Red Medium platform. Anduril, which is a fascinating company, announced it had acquired Blue Force just last week. We'll have more on the AFA convention in just a moment. In other news, the U.S. State Department has formally approved the sale of 25 more F-35s to South Korea. This just increases the imbalance between demand and supply. The orders keep piling up. The throughput stays the same. At the DSEI convention in London, the Global Combat Air Program, formerly Tempest, and I'm sure it'll have another name someday, unveiled its latest iteration. The wings are very different, but otherwise the YF-23 lives on. The Swedish government has started a formal study to see how many Gripens they might be able to send to Ukraine. That would include backfilling their forces with new production Gripens off the assembly line. The Spanish government has approved the budget for another 25 Eurofighters, keeping that line alive, at least once they cut the actual contract. They'll replace F-18s in Spanish service. And it's an honor to welcome to the program John Turpak, Editorial Director of Air and Space Forces magazine. Like much of the Washington aviation community, he spent the last three days at the Air and Space Forces Association's Air Space Cyber Conference. That's the big annual do. John, welcome to the Air Power Podcast. Thanks for having me on. Let's start with an overview. You've covered this event for a good while. How did this year's edition compare to some of its recent predecessors? Well, it was certainly our biggest ever. And in fact, we are sold out except for one booth for next year. So this event has gotten a lot more attention in recent years than it has uh, for a long time. And we had over 20,000 people attend. So that gives you some idea of how large it was. It was a busy show floor. It was. And uh, lots of opportunities to get interviews with generals as we were wading through the sea of airmen trying to get to the next thing. But I would say that the big topics were the collaborative combat aircraft, 
logistics under fire, funding for the B-21, concerns about the deployment schedule of the Sentinel ICBM, Mm -hmm. whether that's going to happen on time, whether they can build the silos on the schedule that they expect. It's a project that's been compared to building the interstate highway system. Recruiting is a little behind the power curve, uh, artificial intelligence, and of course, the uh, ongoing destructive effects of uh, Senator Tuberville's hold on promotions. Which Secretary Kendall really gets lit up about. And that takes us into the fact that this conference really has two parts. One is what people say, and one is what people see. We'll get to the exhibits in a moment, but this is the main platform where Air Force leadership sets out its agenda and its message to the force and to the Hill for the year ahead. In addition to what Secretary Kendall talked with us about last week, his frustrations with Congress and his hoped for reorganization of the Air Force, what else stood out to you from his talk? Well, those were the big ones for certain and certainly got the most attention. And the uh, uh, the senior leadership, when they did their press conferences, all pretty much said, we're already well underway with thinking about this reorganization so that we are ready to go on January 1st when the paper is due. Those were very consistent from his uh, discussion on your show last time. And of course, lots of other leaders spoke, some singly, some in panels. What did you think the highlights were of their messages? I would say that uh, everyone was hammering very hard on the fact that, first of all, we, we can't tolerate the delays that come with Uh, continuing resolutions and late budgets every day given up is a gift to the Chinese is that it was a very consistent message. Everybody was also very uh, consistent about uh, we got to fix the promotion thing because it's, it's not just hurting the, the people whose promotions are being held up. It's really clobbering their families. They can't go to the next school. They can't do their, uh, their other jobs. They can't take retirement. Mm -hmm. Uh, General Kelly, who was the head of Air Combat Command, said that for the 31st year in a row, he loses the Best Husband of the Year award. (laughs) Although one has to wonder whether the message about, gee, this hurts individuals resonates with the folks who are making the decisions about whether these promotions and reassignments should go forward. Well, you know, General Kelly addressed that, too. He said uh, that popping sound you hear north of National Cathedral on Connecticut Avenue. That's not gunfire. That's champagne corks at the Chinese embassy bouncing off the walls. He says that this kind of uh, embarrassing situation for the U.S. military does nothing but give aid and comfort to the enemy and uh, discourages our allies. Strong talk indeed. Now, let's go down into the exhibition. Uh, As you mentioned, all kinds of companies were showing collaborative combat aircraft and really every size of uninhabited aircraft from handheld to the Anduril Fury, which is the size of almost a regular fighter aircraft. What stood out to you among the various things on the floor in addition to uninhabited aircraft and, of course, AI? Sure. Well, I I think that really was the the focus. Uh, CCA's collaborative combat aircraft, That's it's really the Oklahoma land rush. They're not really well-defined. There's a lot of billions being laid in for it. And every contractor who thinks he can get a piece of it, companies that do autonomy, Mm -hmm. AI, sensors, engines, small airframes, big airframes, munitions, you name it, everybody is angling for for a piece of it. I would say that the company that seemed to be best aligned with where the Air Force stands on CCAs, and that's of September 14th, 2023, because it's changing (laughs) every day, 
that would be General Atomics. They had a, a display of what they're calling their Gambit series, which is a central core airframe with engine and the aircraft brains. And around that, you could wrap any of, I think they had five or six different airframes optimized either for stealth penetration or sensing or weapons carriage, attack, uh, even air to air. So that probably comes closest to where the, the generals were saying that program is now. But as I say, it's it's undefined to a certain extent. Now, I, I was also told off the record from a number of people that the Air Force does have an acquisition strategy for CCAs, but they're just not telling us what it is yet. Which is fascinating because you and I were both in a briefing with some significant players on the military side in developing CCA. And the way they described it as constant competition for the platforms, for the payloads, and for the control system and autonomy, this sounds like this is the world that they want with lots and lots of companies throwing out their best ideas and seeing what sticks. They certainly do. You remember the last administration we had, Will Roper, he was talking about a constant introduction of new airframes for the NGAD program, one every five years. And I think that this is the descendant of that idea in that there will be constant competition to improve the platforms, go on to a new platform. They're small enough and inexpensive enough that it wouldn't be such a huge leap to say, okay, we're moving on to the, this next iteration, this next platform. One thing that was asked repeatedly and for which there wasn't a good answer, the Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks about two weeks ago introduced a, a new program called Replicator, mm -hmm. which many people thought, well, that's going to be the, the CCAs in the Air Force. But we were very uh, forcibly steered away from that idea. Replicator is clearly going to be something much smaller. And again, that that fits in with the, the whole uh, land rush idea that everybody and anybody can can get in on this. Well, we'll see if that actually does take root or if they finally decide to lock down one piece and make everything else conform. But John Turpak, Editorial Director of Air and Space Forces Magazine, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. And hey, if you like the Air Power podcast, don't miss our other weekly podcasts. Cabas Ships, hosted by Chris Cabas and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, the downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our new technology report, where we dive deep into the ones and zeros of cyber, networks, chips, and more. It's hosted by Vago Maradian. Earlier this week, Vago sat down with General James Hecker, commander of United States Air Forces in Europe and Air Forces Africa, to talk the Ukraine war and quite a bit more. Here's their conversation. Sir, honor and pleasure having you on the program uh, after having seen you speak so many times uh, at so many different events. I want to start with the frontline role uh, U.S. Air Forces Europe and Africa are playing in the Ukraine war. You guys are spanning the gamut from deterrence to air policing to intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance to the logistics element of it and even the rapid equipping of Ukrainian uh, forces. And it's an adaptive and learning adversary that you're dealing with that continues to threaten the Atlantic Alliance. From your standpoint, what are the latest lessons that you're drawing from this conflict that are going to shape how you're going to be training the force, how, how you want to equip it, how you want to organize it? Well, we've had several lessons learned uh, over the past 18 months uh, since uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. And you kind of hit it from the beginning when you talked about deterrence. Everything that we are doing, all of our priorities that I'll step through, is 
to create a deterrence so we don't go to war with Russia. So that's our number one objective. And the way that we can do that is uh, analyze what's happened there so far. And I think what we've seen so far is their lack of air superiority from either Russia or the Ukraine and what happens when you don't have air superiority. So what we've seen, without air superiority, you end up, as the war started, it was a lot of 155 rounds going back and forth, a lot of destruction, a lot of civilian targets that are getting hit, a lot of death on both sides, unfortunately, and casualties. So that's what we need to avoid. The way you avoid that is by getting air superiority. And the way that we think the best way for us to be able to get air superiority is through counter A2AD, anti-access aerial denial. So in order to do that, we have to take the very sophisticated Russian integrated air and missile defense systems, and we need to be able to neutralize those. And we're working on how we do that uh, within NATO, and we're making significant progress there. But that's our number one priority. Our number two priority is to make sure that if Russia doesn't have air superiority, which we don't think they will, we need to make sure that the tactics that they're using now in the Ukraine, that we have a way to defend against that. We know what they're going to do. They're going to send one-way UAVs over and try to attack the infrastructure of NATO. Uh, They're also going to take long-range cruise missiles that are launched off their bomber aircraft, and they're going to attack our infrastructure. So we need a very sophisticated integrated air and missile defense system throughout NATO to make sure when those those weapons come our way that we have a way to shoot them down and protect the folks in NATO and our infrastructure in NATO. So those are kind of the two top priorities. I also have three other ones, and one is information sharing. We find that if we can share information with our NATO allies and they can share information with us, it gives us added capability, quite a bit of capability, and it's zero cost. It's a policy change. It's a stroke of a pen. And now we increase our capability at really no added cost. And that's what we need to leverage is to be able to increase capability at minimum cost or no cost at all. And then other things that we're looking at is ACE. Agile Combat Employment. And this is a way that we can disperse our aircraft amongst different airfields throughout NATO. And we do this inside the targeting cycle of our adversaries so we don't get stuck and get our equipment shot while it's on the ground. You know, we need to make sure that they have the capability to get airborne and do their job and not get hit on the ground. So that's another very important aspect. And then the last one is command and control. We need to make sure that we have the ability to command and control all of our forces throughout NATO, regardless of if they take down one of our comm systems. We need redundancy in comm. We need resilient comm so we can always talk to our folks and make sure that we're getting the command and control to our folks out in the field that need it. Since the beginning of the war, airmen have been working with Ukrainians to equip them with selected capabilities. In Denver, at the Air Warfare Symposium, you know, you explained how airmen had helped equip Ukraine with JDAMs as well as uh, harm weapons. What are you learning in each one of these cycles about rapidly not just developing capability on alien machines or, or semi-alien, right? I mean, they're still in the NATO inventory, whether in Poland or a lot of the former Warsaw Pact nations. But what are you learning about the rapid development of capability and the fielding of it? And how is that improving your warfighting game? You know, it's, it's sort of like you're doing it for the Ukrainians, but it's actually benefiting you as well. Yeah, well, we're learning that if we partner with industry, it's truly amazing what some of the industry folks can do in adapting our Western weapons 
to former Soviet Union aircraft, like MiG-29s and Su-27s. As you mentioned earlier, we're able to take the HARM missile and we're able to put it on a MiG-29 in a very short amount of time, and we're able to do this at scale, where we can give them quite a few of these missiles that they can use. We did the same thing with the, the JDAM extended range, uh, and it's proving you know, very successful. Uh, so we're happy to continue that, and we're looking at other capabilities that we might be able to give them as well as we go forward. When you look at the Ukrainians, there's a lot of debate about, you know, is the offensive going well? Is it not going well? Where they could improve? Uh, the Ukrainians very nicely have told everybody nobody knows how to fight this war better than we do, so we appreciate your concern. At the end of the day, how do you assess their progress, and how do you think the addition of F-16s and sort of high-end Western combat air power in their inventory changes the equation going forward? Because it's, it's fascinating to me that 18 months into this war, the lessons people are drawing is we need bigger armies, as opposed to actually if you had bigger and better air forces, you avoid that. Yeah. Um, you know, I think when you assess the Ukraine's progress and how they're doing, you know, think back 18 months ago in February of 2022. Everyone thought this was going to be two-week war, one-month war, and here we are 18 months later. So I think they're doing very well, and they did very well by themselves without our equipment for a while. But then, you know, they began to run out of some of their equipment, and we were able to help them out with some equipment and, you know, some surface-to-air missiles that they were getting low on and those kind of things. And it's not just us. I mean, there's—and it's not just NATO. It's not the 31 countries in NATO. It's beyond that. We've had over 55 countries that typically go to Secretary Austin uh, when he calls all the ministers together, and all of them are able to give things— to Ukraine that they're able to use to hold off the Russians. Now, how's the offensive going? Of course, we all hope that it would have went better and they would have taken all the land back that Russia had initially grabbed. Uh, but I, in my opinion, they're doing very well with what they have. Let me take you to the question of the Russians. We have had a tendency of sort of viewing the Russians as a little bit of a clown show. It's certainly, uh, that's an adjective that's been used by many people uh, in terms of you know the early phases of it. But it is an adaptive adversarian. I was talking to a European air power leader who said to me, look, every other day since the beginning of this war, they're launching between 20 and 30 cruise missiles and 20 and 30 long-range unmanned aircraft. Nobody on the planet can do that. How do you assess Russia's capabilities, how they're holding up, and the operations they're able to conduct, and how they're learning so that that shapes how we think about it, because the biggest mistake you can make is underrate your adversary. Sure, and I would never call it a clown show like you mentioned others have. Uh, we take them very seriously. But there, there's things that, uh, you know, they're adapting, like you said, to different things, and we're paying attention to that. And we're making sure that as they adapt that we have the capability to go against those adaptations that they've made to make sure that we, you know, should Article 5 be invoked, that we're ready to go against them. So we constantly are changing not only, you know, how we help the Ukraine, but also how we prepare and, and you know, hopefully deter Russia from going beyond the current conflict. The Russians have a tendency also toward um, muscularity. We're seeing them flex. General Nahum has got a counter every time they come into or try to penetrate Alaskan and U.S. airspace. They're active in the northern Pacific. I think people sometimes forget that the Russians are also a Pacific power. How is their behavior in Europe? Uh, because there have been many instances of unsafe flying, unprofessional flying, not squawking. How do you assess their behavior now? in terms of you know how and what they're doing to try to intimidate NATO nations? 
I look at it as very unprofessional. We in NATO have a very professional Air Force and Armed Forces in general. They are doing things that are very unprofessional. You know, when you look at, remember when they downed one of our MQ-9s when they hit it with, with one of their aircraft, that wasn't on purpose. You know, that was an unprofessional pilot who screwed up and accidentally hit our MQ-9, which took it down, which very well could have taken them down, and that's why, you know, it was an accident on their part. But then we see what happens when they have one of these accidents. You know, President Putin gives them a medal. You know, that would be the last thing that I would do as a USAFIAF Africa commander is reward somebody for incompetence and unprofessionalism. So that's something that we'll never go to in NATO. We'll always be professional, and we'll also make sure that we have competence on our side. There were folks who, and there was a lot of debate about this in, the, in Washington, where we apparently moved the orbits a little bit farther away from Russian territory and whether or not that sends a bad signal. What's the right degree of muscularity? I mean, for example, does easing off empower more bad behavior from your standpoint? And what are the things that you and the entire NATO team are doing to send uh, the right kind of deterrent messages all the time to Moscow? Well, the big thing that we don't want is we don't want a miscalculation. So when there is a miscalculation, like there was in the, the example that I just provided, uh, we take a look at it, and it may take us a couple days, and we may back off for a day or two to make sure that things don't heat up and we don't get into an Article 5 situation and start World War III. I mean, that is not what we want. Um, but at the same time, we can't stay backed off, and we didn't, and we're moving back forward and have moved back forward to make sure that we have the deterrence capability that, that we need to deter them from, you know, escalating this where we don't want it to go. Russia is very fond wherever, whenever it's having a setback to resort to nuclear uh, rhetoric, unfortunately. The fortunate part is that we have several hundred weapons in Europe and our allies and partners are trained uh, to use them in a contiguous order of battle. How are you stepping the nuclear warfighting game up? I know that it started many years ago with more realistic exercising. A, do you take the threats seriously because they seem to resort to it so many times that people are brushing them off? The second part is, how are you building up the capabilities, that muscle memory, that airmen, I mean, you uh, came in in 1989, uh, but just, you know, even then you guys were doing nuclear or RIs, right? I mean, it took a couple of years before President Bush announced the full nuclear stand down. So early in your career, you were working alongside sure. folks doing that kind of stuff. Well, obviously, when a, when a nuclear adversary, you know, threatens the use of nuclear weapons, that's not, nothing that I ever blow off, even if they've done it 20 times in the past, uh, something we always take seriously. So what we need to do is make sure that we're ready, and we need to make sure that Russia knows that we are ready if they were to do something like that, uh, that we have the capabilities to react and react quickly and decisively. And we prepare on that every day to make sure that that deterrence value is there. And I think uh, for the most part that has worked, and that's why you see you know, Russia making threats but not following through, because they know what will happen if they do. And we're ready to make that happen. Is there a particular Russian capability that keeps you up at night? I mean, the hypersonic threat was much touted, but it appears that it's something that we can counter, even with Patriots and even NASAMs, which is fortunate. I mean, are there any capabilities that you have or that they are unveiling, whether it's in their jamming capabilities, they're proving adaptive enough to be able to do a little bit better job against HIMARS? What are some of the capabilities that sort of concern you most? 
Well, I think it's, you know, there's not one particular capability, obviously the nuclear one, that obviously uh, we worry about that, um, but we have a good deterrence against that. As far as uh, some of their, their one-way UAVs, which are pretty new for them, and they're getting more capabilities there with Iran, we are adapting uh, techniques and procedures that will go against that should uh, we have an Article 5 situation that goes into NATO. Uh, we're also giving you know, the Ukrainians some ability to go against that threat, and they've actually, you know, seemed pretty successful at uh, downing a lot of those one-way UAVs as well as the cruise missiles as well. And we know that's going to be important if the fight comes to NATO, and we're making sure that we're ready and prepared to go against that threat. Let me ask you about inventories really quickly. It's great that the NASAMS launcher can fire any uh, AMRAM. There are a lot of older AMRAMs that we're consuming that we're not likely to use uh, in a frontline capacity or even use some sidewinders from that that are older model weapons. Are you comfortable in terms of consumption of stocks of weapons? It's great to be helping deter and defend a, an ally and a partner. On the other hand, you have to worry about your own inventories. And Admiral Rob Bauer, the NATO military chairman, has spoken about this. Are you comfortable that your war stocks are sufficient as an alliance in the event that the game goes up with them and you're going to have to step in and do something? Well, that is something that we look at all the time. And, of course, it's a worry for everyone, but I think we're balancing that really well. And the the way we're making progress on that is we're working hand-in-hand with industry. I think you probably saw a while ago at least the United States – invested $3 billion in industry to make sure that we can keep up with the production rate that's required to make sure that those inventories don't go to such a low level um, that we don't have the inventories that we need. We know there's a long lead time for that, and there's awareness of that, not only in the U.S., but all of our NATO allies are also engaging their industry, and industry's starting to step up to the plate and increase their production capabilities. So it's something that we're going to continue to keep a close eye on, uh, but right now I'm in a comfortable position of where we're at. The F-35 is the world's newest uh, and, um, some would argue, the most capable combat aircraft. It has become a standard NATO fighter. I mean, it's replacing the F-16 in a lot of countries. It's, in fact, replacing other airplanes in a lot of countries. Uh, Who would have thought Switzerland would have been a customer for it? You know, and there's a lot of discussion about the game-changing nature of the airplane and that actually we're figuring out new and different ways to do this. I'm not trying to make this an advertisement for the F-35, but it is a game-changing capability. At the end of the day, what are the most interesting aspects of it, and how are you, in an unclassified format, using this aircraft for deterrence, for ISR, and a variety of other missions, including actually telegraphing deterrence uh, sometimes to the Russians? Well, in order for the F-35 to be a deterrence, you have to have enough of them. And since the invasion, we've had three countries sign an LOA that they're going to buy F-35s. We have Finland that's going to buy 64, Switzerland is buying 36, and Germany is going to buy 35. In addition to that, we have five other countries that are also will soon sign an LOA to buy F-35s and potentially two more after that. So we're talking 10 different countries since the invasion that have decided that they're going to buy F-35s. F-35 isn't going to be the end all of everything. You can't just say just because we have 600 F-35s by the 2030 time frame that that's going to deter Russia or that's going to turn the tides in our favor. But it is a big deal of having those many aircraft with the capability that they have. 
their capability, you know, they talk to one another. They talk to off-board sensors. They have so many sensors that they can detect things that other things can't detect. And when you have 600 of them, you're always going to have some airborne that are going to detect these things. So I think it's a big thing. But we're not going to put all our eggs into the F-35. We're still developing other systems with other nations to make sure uh, that we can deter Russia from attack. Do you feel like you have enough long-range sticks uh, not to, you know, tug on what Bob Work always used to say is we have to outstick our adversaries, and our adversaries have been in investing in longer-range uh, firepower? Ultimately, do you have enough of those longer-range sticks to be able to use in a conflict? Yeah, with Russia, you know, we're pretty well matched, but we are developing capabilities that will give, her, give us longer range sticks. You know, as a fighter pilot, you can never have a missile that goes far enough, right? So we're going to try to continue to develop that, and we're working with industry right now, and they're taking it seriously, and we're getting, uh, you know, close to getting added capabilities that I feel very comfortable about in the future. Let me take you to the question of Africa, and then I'm going to bring you back to the force and, and culture to wrap it up. After a period of relative stability, Africa is now crisis-riddled again. We've seen a series of coups, and uh, France is concerned about the diminution of its own authority. We've always regarded the French as a stabilizing and a peacekeeping and sort of the most thoughtful power to help shape and advise the United States, even uh, on the Africa Command side of the equation. And yet the French influence in many places is being replaced by Russian influence. Wagner was uh, very successful. It looks like Wagner is no more, at least in its old iteration. From your standpoint, what are the challenges we face in the region? And what is it that we need to do as an alliance to engage and to stabilize a very important continent, especially when there seems to be a transition of influence from Paris to Russia? Well, obviously, these coups that we are seeing uh, are concerning, and we take them very seriously. We spent a lot of time, you know, recently with the Niger coup and what we're going to do and those kind of things, and we've been working hand-in-hand -hand with France. You know, I, I have weekly phone calls with the French air chief, and we discuss different ways that we can help avoid, you know, a conflict there, but try to bring it back to de democratic rule. Uh, we're working with our State Department, and I think we all agree now, both us, France, other folks in the, in the region, that we need a diplomatic solution to this. And that's what we're uh, going for, and it's actually going fairly well. We seem to be getting a diplomatic solution where there's not going to be escalation, where there's not going to be a huge civil war with ECOWAS and those folks uh, coming in. Uh, so I think we're in a good glide path here compared to where we were, let's say, three weeks ago. So diplomacy appears to be working. Of course, you never know when, when that's going to change, and we'll be ready in case it does change. Uh, but right now we're looking for the diplomatic solution, and it looks like it's, uh, it's going fairly well. One question just leapt to mind, uh, that the Russians are very effective at information operations, disinformation operations. In Slovakia, all the supporters of the war are getting voted out of office, and there will be a new, it looks like uh, there's going to be a new prime minister who's going to be anti-Ukraine. In Africa, the Russians and the Chinese are very effective in their messaging to sort of undermine the alliance. I know that your side is the military side of the equation in terms of the hard deterrence, but how are you factoring in all of these softer mechanisms that actually change the hard power dynamic, right? How are you and the team factoring in the really extensive and remarkably successful disinformation efforts that the Russians are prosecuting across Europe? Well, that's the key that you said is disinformation. If they were doing information, that's a different story. What the U.S. and what NATO does is information. We don't lie. 
Okay, we don't give disinformation. I think a lot of the world has seen recently with the invasion of Ukraine that a lot of the rhetoric that is out there on the Russian side is, in fact, disinformation. It's not, you know, real information like we're providing. And as more and more people realize that, I think they see less and less and pay attention less and less to what the Russians are saying because they realize that it's disinformation. Now, of course, not everybody's going to be on that same sheet. Uh, but I think more and more we see a lot of the NATO for sure, as well as other countries, are seeing that this is just disinformation rhetoric coming from the Russians. And the information that they're getting from the Western world is the true information. Let me ask you about culture as well as Secretary Kendall's pending reorganization. Very aggressive schedule. He wants to have some kind of a plan formed up by January 24, which is just a couple of months away. You have been part of the senior leadership team that's been working the culture change across the Air Force, executing both at a command level and a major command level some of the things that the chief and the secretary and the chief in particular has been talking about for some time in terms of accelerating change and driving those culture changes. What are some of the recommendations you're going to be sending to Secretary Kendall about some of the changes that, of course, you've seen in your long and distinguished career about things that have to change to be able to optimize the Air Force for a great power competition, whether it's on training, whether it's on readiness, whether it's on equipping an organization. What are some of the big changes you're going to be sending over to him that you'd like to see? Well, as you know, one of the big things that Secretary Kendall wants to do is modernize our force. And you can't modernize your force and hold on to all of your old equipment at the same time in the fiscal environment that we have right now. So you have to uh, modernize your force at the expense of some of the older equipment that we have that quite honestly isn't useful right now in the war with great power competition kind of adversaries. So that's what Secretary Kendall is doing with his operational imperatives. And of course, we at USAFIAF Africa wholeheartedly support that. Uh, we do have to make sure that we have enough equipment in case something happens you know, relatively soon with the Article 5 situation. And I think we have a pretty good relationship with UCOM as well as the Air Force to make sure that we have enough equipment to hold off anything in the short term while we prepare and modernize our force in the long term. The other thing that we do that doesn't really uh, cost anything is we're empowering our people. We're taking what used to be decisions made at a higher level, and we're pushing that down you know, to the captain's level, to the senior NCOs, and we're empowering them to not only you know, make decisions when we can't you know, discuss with them, but we're basically giving them mission command or guidance, uh, and then we're letting them run with it. And if you do that with airmen and guardians, uh, they'll surprise what they can do with their innovation, and, uh, and they're doing a great job doing that. So we're gonna continue empowering the younger folks in our Air Force and Space Force to make sure that they know that they are empowered to make the decisions that they need to make to make sure that, uh, that we can deter Russia as well as China. But that means also allowing people to take risk and not punish them or draw the right lessons from them, right? I mean, once upon a time, small infractions could get you fragged. From your standpoint, what's your philosophical approach to risk taking? My philosophical approach is the same as Secretary Kendall has and Chief Brown has, uh, which, and I'm not just saying this, it's the same as I have as well, which is we're not going to punish somebody who uh, takes risk and has a mistake and has a small setback. Uh, that's just part of the game that we're going to play here. So I think it's very important to make sure that 
people feel comfortable in making their own decisions at the lower level and knowing that the senior leadership has their back when they make one of those mistakes. Now, obviously, they can't do a crime and those kind of things, and I think they realize that, and I'm not worried about that. Is there any feedback in terms of the new organization? Are there things in your mind as the secretary and the chief go about re-architecting things? Or are there things on the top of your mind that you're like, hey, here are three things I want you guys to bear in mind? Well, I think it's the things that I've discussed already. Hey, as we make these changes, let's make sure we empower them. Let's make sure that the folks aren't uh, feeling like they're vulnerable because they're, they're making a decision. Uh, and then, yeah, that's about it. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to the Air Power Podcast. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, hey, please tell a friend. Special thanks to GE Aerospace for powering the whole flight. We'll be back next week.